0: Get him back. You know in all seriousness, he's got. There's a, a family uh, situation that he's looking into. He's on the phone right now, but hopefully he can join us. But we're going to get started. We have about a half hour for questions, and so we want to make sure that we have time. for it. So here's the way. I guess we're going to do this. Just um, put your hand up if you have a question. I will try to repeat your question, um, and then we will uh, we will look to you. Uh, so who would like?
1: to kick us off with a question. Okay, Christian. So, um, so basically, uh, in your earlier talk, you talked about um, the highest purpose is not uh, salvation of the self, but to glorify God's name by expanding the uh, kingdom of God on earth. But then, it also, the Bible talks about uh, how we're predestined. So, those who are saved have been saved since the beginning of time kind of thing. So, where does that fit into our mission to go and spread the gospel
2: yeah good or do you want to repeat that yeah
0: I'm not sure I can repeat that oh okay so
2: I'll let you synthesize have, it. well I'll see if uh, I get it correctly so um, I mentioned earlier that um, we're called to glorify God by extending his kingdom in the earth but the Bible also talks about the fact that we're predestined to be conformed to his image and the question is how do those fit together I, that's a great question um I think when you look like in Ephesians 1 and the other texts that speak about that, I think those are specifically saying that God has chosen us, his people, in Christ to fulfill his plan. But that, moving on there from that plan, that plan is to extend his kingdom in the earth. And of course his kingdom is extended first by the salvation of individual souls, but it doesn't stop there. And that's where that cultural mandate Comes in glorifying God in everything that we do. What I was wanting to get away from is a popular notion that God predestined us to salvation, and so that He could sort of populate heaven, and we wouldn't go to hell. Well, that's true, but if you read the Bible, it's a lot more than that. Uh, God's very interested in this earth and the future of this earth, and He wants His people to exert godly stewardship in all of the earth. So in other words what I'm saying, short answer is we're predestined to be doing that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Great question, Christian. All right, who's got another question?
2: So the question, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, the Bible doesn't teach women should be in combat. And the question was about women in the military. So here's the key. Good question. I, I'm glad you gave me that opportunity. I want to distinguish those two. I didn't say the Bible would forbid women being in the military. I said it would forbid them being in combat. But there are a lot of non-combat, good non-combatant roles for women in the military. My wife wasn't, but she was a nurse. She could very well have been in the military. We need military nurses. I mean... I'd want a sympathetic woman helping my wounds rather than a mean old grumpy man as a male nurse, for example. And, and other, of course, clerical jobs and uh, background uh, and intelligence work and a number of other things. But the notion of sending women into combat to fight for a country, that's something that would have been considered in biblical times and in much of the rest of history barbaric. There's a difference between the two. But I'm not opposed to women being in the military. We, we, probably, we might need more women in the military than we have.
0: Good question:
1: Sydney, who's got the next question for us? I just want a little bit more clarification on the terms natural law and positive law. i heard of like natural rights and stuff, but I'm not sure natural law, positive law, what is that
2: exactly. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that Dr. Ventrella came back. He knows much more about natural law than I do, quite naturally. So uh, I'll repeat the question if he didn't get it. What's the difference between natural law and positive law? So. He, uh, he is the attorney and I'm not. So I'll allow him to address that issue.
3: Ah, natural law traditionally uh, considered is that which derives from what's called divine law. This is the schema of kind of classical, Thomistic, based on Thomas Aquinas' idea. It's the law of God reflecting his very character. Positive law is that which is uh, enacted by man. So it's a culture-making event that uh, applies the principles or first things of natural law to particularize uh, political and legal contexts. So um, if the natural law says, you shall not murder, the Ten Commandments is a summary of the natural law. But then the politician has to decide, of, OK, what constitutes murder? What about war? Does that violate uh, that precept of the natural law? What about something uh, where someone's uh, out of their mind or drives recklessly? Does that violate? And so the positive law seeks to make gritty some of the applications of the overall precepts. Now, we need to understand that it's not really either-or because the revealed will of God, that's to say the scripture, is completely consistent with the natural one. One's a transcript, both are transcripts of God's holiness. Natural law is that which Paul says is written on the heart. Romans chapter 2. So without excuse ethically. But we have the scriptures. And so the scriptures allow us to more particularly apprehend the will of God from a legal standpoint. And interestingly enough, scripture also has positive law in the sense that. It takes the uh, the universals of the Decalogue and Commandments and has particularized situations. And for example, the Law of the Covenant, Exodus 21 to 23. Well, that's God's law, but it's also a form of positive law because it does particular situations. Okay. Thank you.
1: Another question. Yeah, I was just curious on your opinion of the role of government. You obviously are against gay parents. And I was just wondering, kind of, the Christian response to the crisis going on in conservatives, especially um, William J. Amogal in his book, Power and Service, talks about the government is in the judiciary aspect of the judicial policy. Whereas gay marriage, is it kind of an instance of keeping in the bedroom? Or how do you go about legislating that? Because also, just further, if there was a 51% Christian vote versus 49%, could we legislate that kind of in a draconian
3: way? But let me
2: know. Yeah, you want to do Well, that?
3: let's remember what marriage is. Marriage is a creational norm, it is pre political. The role of the state with with respect to that pre political norm is to recognize it and to regulate it. It is not within the jurisdiction of the state to redefine it. It simply recognizes and regulates it to protect it. Why? Because in a marriage, there's often t- it's a separate what's called a race or a thing that requires recognition and requires protection from the other, from third parties. And then you have the issue of children. Back mentioned libertarianism, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Winstead's uh, Staley, back in the 1800s, was a libertarian that proposed, get out of the marriage business, let people just contract and do what they want to do. They tried that for a little bit. And it led to the 1753 passing of Lord Hardways Act. Because what happened is it had fraud. It had abused women. It had neglected children. It was a disaster socially. So the state needs to be involved in recognizing and regulating those relationships that stem from this particular creation of war. So yeah.
1: how do you determine what is between political taking God's name and faith? Could the government legislate that? Or would breaking the act they could that?
2: Well, it's not just pre-political. I mean, basically the moral law of God and the Bible, and as Jeffrey would say, the, the natural law, what's often been understood as the natural law, which I believe is based on that revelation. It's not just pre-political, though that's important too. But when you look at the moral law of God and the Bible, and we can talk about that, as it applies, as the moral law would apply in the civil sphere, yes, the state should enforce that. So I would say that Christians consistently cannot be what we today call libertarians. Now we, we do believe in a radically smaller view of the state than today, the state is massively large. But that doesn't mean that the libertarian notion that as long as I'm not harming someone else, that should be legal. No, the Bible doesn't say that. He just mentioned one. The state has a vested interest in marriage. I think this, in fact, I would suggest the state even more than the church has a vested interest in marriage, because if you think about it, it's a creational institution. It's not just a pre-political institution. It's a pre-ecclesiastical institution. It's rooted in the creation norms. So the state has an interest. It's you know, saying, well, the state getting involved in the bedroom. Well, it's not so much the state getting involved in the bedroom as getting involved in a basic social institution without which eventually there can't be a society. That's
3: right. Let me just to your other question of where do you draw the line. Paul answers this question, okay? Uh, 1 Timothy 1. He says, we know... Beyond dispute, some knowledge. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this: that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, those who strike their mothers and fathers for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, okay? Now, you didn't hear Sabbath-breaking, nor did you hear coveting, because there's no civil jurisdiction over the conscience. You know, you shall not covet. That's a sin, it's not a crime. And here, we have an administration, Paul seems to suggest by omission, both on coveting and on Sabbath-breaking, that those were particularized, uh, for the covenanted nation of Israel. We don't see that with uh, respect to New Testament ethics. Though the principle is that the church could certainly excommunicate someone who does not uh, rest on the Lord's dead at some point because to be heinous and blasphemous and so forth. So I would say that scripture interprets scripture at that point.
0: Okay, well we're gonna get I, I'm gonna I'm to we're gonna get to another question now just so we can cover everyone over here. So
1: um, earlier Andrew, you mentioned uh, in the cultural mandate, you said, you briefly mentioned cultural neutrality yes. and uh, how it's a sin, but what
2: is cultural neutrality exactly? Great question. The question is what is cultural neutrality? There's the notion a lot of people have that, particularly with, with respect to religion, you can remove religion altogether from the culture. And that what's necessary is for people to rely on their reason uninfluenced by religion, or maybe even intuition or experience, and create a culture without any religious assumptions or religious presuppositions. But the, that's first, that's an impossibility. Biblically, we all have this bent. It's Like I said in that second talk, I mean, our heart is given, it's, it was originally created to be turned toward God in faith and reliance and trust and love. What, what sin did is it, it didn't get rid of this desire. It twisted this desire. So now, the notion that you could have an area of society in which those desires weren't manifested either one way or the other is impossible. So even the people who say we should, have a, we should get all of religion out of culture, they're really saying, I want to impose my religion in culture, my religious humanism, for example. That's what they're essentially saying. So never let anybody get away with that and say, I have a problem with you, Christians. You're you're wanting to impose your religion and culture. The fact is culture by its very nature is religious. It's a religion externalized. So it's either going to be humanistic, or it's going to be Christian, it's going to be Islamic, or it's going to be Hindu. There's going to be a, culture, a religious culture of some kind. But it, what it can't be is neutral.
3: Yeah.
0: So, so help, help us maybe if somebody's you know, in a classroom or in a discussion, and someone says, look, keep your religion out of politics. How can they they respond effectively to that?
2: Okay, so the number of ways. So if if it were a Christian making that charge, you could quote the text, whether therefore we eat or drink or whatever we do, who can finish it for me? No, except politics, it says, right? Didn't it say that? Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all to the glory of God except politics. Well, no, if we're going to be a Christian... Christianity is not like a hat. I'm going to put on my Christian hat today and go to church. But when I go in the voting booth, I have to take off my Christian hat. Or when I go in the courtroom, I have to take off my Christian hat. Or whatever the case may be. Now, if it's an unbeliever that makes that point, point out, so what you're really saying to me is that you want your particular philosophical religious presuppositions to enter the political realm, and you don't want me to to, to assert mine. So really, basically, though many of them don't mean it this way, it's really a disingenuous and deceptive move to say you're trying to impose your religion in politics. What they're really saying is how dare you impose your religion in politics because I want to impose mine as religious humanism. Does that make, does that make sense? Does everybody understand? And
3: I, would, I would add uh, a stroke that says, as I said earlier, every legislative act, is a moral act. That's, that's what right. legislation is. It draws lines. It says, this is what we ought to do. Anytime you talk about what we ought to do, that's a moral claim. So the question then becomes, you want me to draw my line without influencing on my uh, convictions. But you are drawing lines based on your convictions. So no one's saying, we're going to legislate when you should go to communion in the hours of the church. That's what they typically get confused. We're simply saying that, we're a religious creature, and we have convictions based upon it. and those will translate into moral convictions. Good, thank you, Ryan. I think. Did you have a question?
1: Yes. Um, with now the uh, LGBTQ movement coming in, uh, and now they're getting more um, like laws against hate speech uh, for them, um, how is a Christian going to act uh, with those now more of a threat when we're talking about these things as? they're so important in such a big cultural movement in today's society, um, especially in our futures, as many of us are going to have families that we can't really abandon if we were to get sued or even throw into prison for these things as they move want. How are we
2: to act on them? How old are you? I'm really scared to see what you're going to be like when you're 21. You are a very sharp young man. God, bless. I'm going to let, if he doesn't mind, Dr. Ventrella, he's the expert on law. I'm going to let him, if he doesn't mind. And
0: maybe let's you. just just repeat the question. Um, so, so, so I think I think the question, Brian, is um, with hate speech laws, how do we respond to that? How do we live um, as Christians um, and, and deal with that?
1: Um, that's, that's the question.
3: The good news is, is that we have a history with respect to hate speech laws, particularly as applied to Christians, Acts chapter 5. You can do whatever you want. Just don't talk about this Jesus person. Right? And then what did they do? They wanted to kill him. They didn't. They didn't beat him because they were afraid of crowds. The council took them in. They beat him. That was a speech code. You can talk about all this religious stuff, talk about flavor, talk, But you can't talk about Jesus. Why? Because he's Lord. That's the problem. See? Is that for Pentecost? And we have a speech code. Now, what's interesting about that, uh, they said, and they counted it a joy to be able to suffer for the sake of Christ, and then it goes on to say, after they were beaten and released, they went house to house, and then the synagogues continuing to say these things. So how are we to act? It affects not only our religious days, the synagogue days, which is Saturday then, but also day to day, our daily life. So, the principle is when the state calls us to be censored, to be silenced for the things of God. We simply cannot obey it. And Peter says, we must obey God, not man. It's exactly a parallel situation with respect to the hate speech and speech. speech. Now, that doesn't mean we're not wise. It doesn't mean we become jerks for Jesus, as we said earlier. But the fact is that they tell you, don't say that. You can't talk about, for example, biblical sexual ethics for example, that Jesus is the exclusive way of salvation, to say, for example, that uh, Islam is a false religion and a false situation, when they say that, we have to act and take what comes, and we we submit to the consequences. Because those laws are not just bad laws. They're not law at all. That's right. Because they deny humanity to the human person to dissent and to express what they believe.
2: I would like to add quickly. Great question. I pastored two churches. From time to time, we would have gay people come to attend. I'd always treat them with the greatest dignity and greatest respect, because remember, though they're sinful and very sinful, they're still made in the image of God. It should be treated with dignity. But I couldn't change my sermon. I didn't intentionally preach against it that Sunday or whatever. Oh, you can't change our sermon. We have to speak the truth, no matter what the consequences. And for, but final thing, for people to say, well, I don't think we're going to address that issue as controversial. Let's just get back to preaching the gospel. There's a problem with that. The gospel is what God has done through Jesus Christ on the cross, resurrection, ascension, to turn back all evil and all life in society. To preach against a particular sin, whatever it is, is an aspect of preaching the gospel. So if we refuse to stand for biblical ethics, we're not preaching the gospel.
0: We've talked a lot about confrontation and the importance of it can can you share with us one of you share with us maybe i mean you've faced a lot more confrontation than than some of us have and um just some of the rules that you apply in terms of when to answer when to take a stand do you die on every hill um how do you exercise discernment so that, you know, as it says in Proverbs, sometimes you answer a fool according to his folly, um, lest he be wise in his own conceits, and sometimes you answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. So can you give us some pointers on when to confront and when to stay silent? And maybe even how to confront?
3: Him. Yeah, um, a couple thoughts there in a story or two. Um, if a person's a scoffer or a scorner, Robert says, you don't want to engage with them. That's just a waste of, of time and effort and that sort of thing. So you have to be asserting the audience. Is the person accusing or are they inquiring? I think that's a clue to that sort of thing. I think also the question comes, um, I'll give you an example. So uh, I was practicing law and made the largest law firm in the state, kind of doing well. I was just kind of a rookie. And at that, my first year, I was courting my wife. We were get married. And my law firm has uh, a tradition of having uh, not only celebrating engagements, but debauched b- bachelor parties, right. like debauched, even like criminal bachelor parties. And this has been going on for decades. This party, oh yeah, great! And I just respectfully had a respectful appeal to you know don't, you don't really need to do that. Oh, this is great. We're gonna. It's like, no, I, I don't really you know need to do that. Thank you for. You know, affirming uh, my pending way, but I, I'm just not really interested in doing that. I, just, I stood in my ground; I wasn't going to do it. That meant they fired me. they did, but they respect. I had developed a reputation. So, our incarnation oftentimes precedes our proclamation. So we build up capital, we build up that good reputation. Our good works through poor men. Then there's nothing they can say. It puts them to silence. Peter says so I had that going too I think the other thing sometimes we miss is we get the oh this is the truth I know what the word of God says on this issue and we forget that Proverbs says to make knowledge acceptable to make it beautiful and so the manner of the gospel is also very very important kindness every time I had a debate I would always go into 2nd uh, Timothy 2 uh, serving the Lord must be gentle not quarrelsome, kind to all asking God to give her that sort of posture and attitude allows you to engage in these very furious issues in a way that it models how we're supposed to go. In terms of timing, I think it just depends. If God's process in front of you and it's causing, you know, the claim is to make you violate the law of God to sin, you have to stop it. You have to confront it. Now, you might be able to confront by walking away, but if it's in a work situation or a school situation, if we had clients that did this, That it's one thing to take different sides of debates. So, you know, uh, compose a letter that argues for uh, same sex adoption. Okay, you need to understand those arguments. That's just an academic exercise. You ought to be able to do that. But what if the teacher goes on to say, write a letter in support of some unbiblical thing and then send it to a real congressman or legislator? Can do it on the wrong side of the issue. And we've had clients where that's happened to stand firm. It's,
2: so it's really what it comes personally to you. I'll give one uh, particular anecdote. Uh, my wife and I have some dear friends and have for many years. Uh, we met them recently and with broken hearts, they told us that their son has recently informed them, he lives in the West Coast, not surprisingly, that he's homosexual and he's seriously considering marrying. Another male, obviously they're sad. You can tell by their demeanor, very broken hearted. They've talked about how to deal with it. He's invited them to the wedding and so on. So on the one hand, I told them, I commiserated, let them know how deep, I deeply hurt they were, how sympathetic I was, how that they should treat him with great love and great respect, their own son, and show him that they care for him, but not for one iota to endorse his sin. In my view, and I'll say this since it was asked, if uh, Gay marriage is legal in Canada, right? Yeah. Uh, if you happen to be invited to a gay wedding ceremony, don't you dare go. I don't care who it is. Because part of going to a wedding, today everybody say, well, going to a wedding, it's a celebration. No, actually, that's secondary. A wedding actually is a public covenant making and you're there as witnesses. Being there as witnesses, you're giving at least tacit approval to this wedding. So you absolutely shouldn't, you can tell people you love them, you care for them, but I'm sorry, I can't lend my endorsement to that. So there's on the one hand, that was just one example in my life of people that I love deeply, profoundly. And I love their son, whom I've known since he was quite young. So in that way, you can show great love and compassion without in any way compromising the truth.
3: And I did the same thing in my life to an unbilled remarriage. Yeah. I was I was asked to be a part of the wedding party and to attend. And I said, "You know, I care about you for all these years, but I can't do that." So it's not just the LGBT issue; it's marriage as God's ordinance. We have to protect that. Thank you. Okay. Other
0: questions? Um, back here. Maybe stand up and, and uh, try to project your voice. So
1: you're saying earlier about keeping your Christianity in politics. What would be your separation
0: of church and state
2: yeah that's a in some ways uniquely American issue isn't it Um, actually some people have the impression not knowing it's somehow found in the constitution or declaration it's not it's from a letter that Jefferson uh, Thomas Jefferson one of our founders wrote to the Danville Baptist properly understood actually the, the Bible does indicate a separation of church and state but not the separation of the state from God you see, you understand the distinction there. It's not the responsibility of the church to commandeer the state. There were times in the medieval world, not too often, when the church actually did kind of commandeer the state, no question about it. Many times the state tried to commandeer the church, and they were joined together in an unhealthy, unbiblical way. These are two separate spheres. Family, church, and state are three separate God-established spheres. They've each got their own limits, their own authority. For instance, the church itself can't execute anyone, the church can't uh apply capital punishment and uh, the state can't excommunicate anybody you see the family they've each got their own roles to play so separation of church and state yes of course if you're in the legal realm people often seculars spring up well we believe in separation of church and state but they don't mean what i meant they meant we don't want any religious issues to intrude into any legal argument that's completely separate and that's false. You understand where I'm going there? See the difference? The church as an institution should be separate from the state as an institution. But that doesn't mean that religion should be separated from the state and politics because that is an impossibility.
3: David's not a priest. Right. Okay. Thank you. um, of capital punishment,
1: um So do you think the state has the authority to still do capital punishment? And I understand the Old Testament, especially in the... Um, that such uh, government did, according to it was in the in the, the law, um, But do you think that's still valid, especially with the modern government
2: we have? Yeah. So mm-hmm. capital
0: punishment is the question, and does the state have the right to exercise? capital punishment.
2: The state not only has the right, the state must, according to the word of God. You mentioned Abraham. I think you might have meant Moses there. But even this is one of those, though it's not a creational norm, not long after the fall... Uh, capital punishment was given in the Noahic covenant, part of the revelation to, revelation to Noah, and then later on in the Mosaic era, but don't say it's people think, well, it's not really in the New Testament actually, it's quite clearly implied in there when Paul I don't know if you remember the case, Paul the Apostle was being accused of various things and just false charges, and people say, he's, you know, some said he's basically worthy of death and you know what he said? He said, if I've done anything worthy of death and I don't refuse to die, I'm willing to suffer capital punishment because it is legitimate so, the Bible doesn't indicate in either testament that capital punishment... And this is where we would disagree with some of our many of our Roman Catholic friends. They see to be consistently pro-life, you can't be against abortion and the for capital punishment. Oh, yes, you can. Because the most important thing is not human life, vital though it is, but God's law. So, yes, the Bible does teach capital punishment and it requires it in certain cases.
3: Ezekiel has a very interesting passage that talks about those who profane God. And they ask, how do do we profane you? And here's the example the prophet gives. By killing those who should live and keeping alive those who should die. So you have abortion and capital punishment in the space of just a few strokes in the Hebrew. That's a profanation to God, by killing those who should live and by keeping alive those who should die. And in fact, Jesus is is tested on this, I think, in Matthew 15. And what he affirms is the case law of the incorrigible teenagers that strike his parents. And there, there's no indication he abrogates capital punishment. Now, I'm not saying that should be the law today, but I am saying there's New Testament evidence that Jesus certainly had the opportunity to go, whoa, 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 the Messiah's come, the kingdom's here, we don't do that anymore. No, he didn't do that. Look it up, Matthew 15, yeah. 15 24 mm-hmm. so.
0: Thank you. We have time for maybe two more questions.
2: I didn't hear all of that. uh, So
0: we've talked about confrontation in a very public sphere. If someone has confided in you with respect to, I take it, a sin in in their life or something that you need to confront, um, is the question, what advice um, would our uh, uh, panelists have on how to deal with, with that? Is that the question? So so is the question, should you expose it or confront it or both? Whatever you okay, so your thoughts on... Yeah, you? I'll,
2: I'll let him do the, maybe the legal side, but I've, I've given a lot of thought to that. I think the Bible indicates. Uh, the Bible doesn't say that it's wrong to cover certain sins, not excuse them. But if there are certain private sins, if someone comes to you, Let's take a prime example. Young men here, tempted like all... I've got a number of men. Younger men have come to me and confided in me that they have a problem with pornography. I said, you did the right thing. I confront them gently. I say, it's sin. It's wrong. Let's confess that sin to God and put it away. And let's talk about accountability. Now, am I going to go get on Facebook and tell everybody, you know, publicly confront? No, I wouldn't. But people that sin publicly need to be confronted publicly. And people that sin privately need to be confronted privately unless their private sin could easily lead to public sin and does lead to public sin. That often happens in cases men do things and women do things in private but it needs to be exposed publicly because it very soon could become a public sin. That's, but that's a separate issue. So if somebody comes and confides in you you love them but part of loving confrontation is confronting in love. Say that's thank you for coming. Let's pray about it. It's wrong. You need to change. But let's, What can I do to help? What can I do to... I love what Jeff says. If it's broken, fix it. You're not generally talking about an evil person stamping it out. This is the person that wants to change. Say, so it's it's wrong, so let's see what we can do by God's grace to fix it.
0: Jeff, anything you want to add to that?
3: The only, the only exception is in the legal realm is if, if you know, someone comes comes and says, you know, I really want to kill my wife. Right. Uh, you may have an obligation to... Um, take measures other than, I don't know if I'm going to do it, but, you know, I really keep having ideations of killing my wife or something. You probably want me to go at least convey that, in that sense, expose that to the wife or perhaps to other church elders or perhaps to the law authorities. You know, if there's harm, eminent harm to third parties, then there's no obligation to keep that uh, just between those two I things.
2: mean, like pedophilia is a yeah. prime example. <laughs> yeah
0: excellent question yes okay we have time for one more question yeah one more
1: so uh, when it comes to evangelism uh, homosexuals
3: and so like let's say you like can to do a body check, like you come know, to church and stuff and then they come to church and they say oh I want to become a Christian I want to become a member
1: but they're still homosexual how do you deal with that because i like it feels very like you're a hypocrite if you say like oh you can't be homosexual when you
3: about that because you just invited
2: them, to church, you them in church can you barely know this person? So like how do you confront them all that when
0: you are probably like how do what would you do in that situation? Do you want to repeat that or yeah. Yeah. so the, the situation is that uh homosexuals comes to your church or someone who says that they are gay comes to your church and they um they say they become a Christian, um and say they become a Christian, but grant, I take it, want to continue in that lifestyle.
3: Yeah. Okay. Well,
0: but, but but they want to, I take it, they want to be a member of the church, and how would you deal with that? So, Jeffrey, let I, go I think
3: it's, it's wonderful if you want to celebrate confirm that, assuming it's a biblically proclaiming church and people understand that, and that sin is the great level or less. But here here's where I go one on one with something like that. It's like, do you trust this yes, I think Jesus, yes. He he is he's Lord, I'm willing to confess that. I've got a lot of baggage, I've got this. But you know, I still got this identity and I want to continue there. I think then the question is, will you believe Christ is his Savior? Well yeah, that's why I want to be a Christian. Then you need to ask the next question, what does he save us from? He saves us from our sin. And who defines sin? Well God does. So at that point we need to start addressing that whole issue of evil desire which is what uh, sexual lust is whether heterosexual or, or, or same sex and Colossians 3.5 put off evil desires uh, your identity is either Christ or not so you to need some discipleship but I'm here to tell you that does happen people do repent I have a pastor friend uh, that has had multiple people that have been involved in bestiality, you know, mm. sexual acts with animals. I mean, that's just gross, violent, but ever so far. He's had uh, child molesters who have repented to come to Christ. Now, we don't let them go serve in the nursery, right? I mean, that's not prudent. But it takes a while through years of dwelling with, it's not just instant presto changes, but it's continuing to bear with them, bear burdens, and you can tell whether just that they're looking for the the check mark of that and I'm going to go you know, undermine the church or they're struggling with these
2: kinds of issues and by the way that's true of all unrepentant sins that's you right. can't single out homosexuality if somebody comes a drug addict and says you know I really want Jesus' help but I you know I want to I, I, I need to continue my heroin habit and, but but I want to come and be baptized. No, you say I'm sorry. Let's let's work on this. Trust the Holy Spirit. There's an interesting uh, in the ancient church. There's there's some interesting baptismal formulas. But one of them was almost universal. Is with adults is they would say uh, the language was something like this. I rena-, before they got baptized. They take a vow, a baptismal vow. And say, I renounce the devil and all of his pomp and all of his works. So to get baptized, and there's salvation, to get, to get baptized is a public declaration of renouncing a life of sin. That's true of homosexuality and any other sin.
0: All right. Excellent question. Ryan, did you have one other thing you wanted to ask?
1: Um, yeah, this is just a, uh, uh, you mentioned the word uh, exclusive. Yeah,
3: so that's my term.
1: Yeah, um, I just didn't really get like a good definition, so I don't think.
3: That you that yeah, and the, the, the point being that politics is excluded from any concept of living a Christian life. It just doesn't touch. It's some neutral area that the faith doesn't touch. But one of them is, reduces it, and says redemption equals politics as opposed to affects it. And the other one is, oh, it doesn't have any, anything to do with it. They're saying, we just do the church. The kingdom is limited to the church. There are people that teach that they're mistaken, as we heard this morning. Does that help? Yes. Thank you. Okay, let's give a great hand to our <clears> throat> throat>